Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hi, everyone. Good morning. Welcome back to the show and our daily coverage of the Ukraine crisis. A lot of folks have been asking questions about the Cold War, nuclear Armageddon, all these questions that those born in the 1990s and above had no idea would matter to our lives today. I want to do an episode on this question of the Cold War, what we can learn from it, and what that actually has to do with the current struggle we see, especially as China and Russia appear increasingly tied together as part of this competition with the United States, Europe, and the broader West. So I brought on Professor Hal Brands. He is a professor at Johns Hopkins University, and he just wrote a book, The Twilight Struggle, what the Cold War teaches us about great power rivalry today. So if every episode in this daily series has a theme, this one is what are the lessons from the Cold War? What do we do well? What do we do poorly? And how does that inform how we should think about everything moving forward, especially when the stakes are so high with the invocation of nuclear weapons? Quick note, this uh, episode is going to be published early in the morning, and Sagar and I are going to tape the latest version of our back-and-forth discussion where we will agree, disagree, everything in between. So if you can get us a comment, a question, a topic to cover before 9.30 a.m. Eastern Standard Time this morning, please do email us at realignmentpod at gmail.com. Quick other things, be sure to subscribe to the Substack. Hal Brands has multiple books, so you can also go check out the bookshop that we keep for this store, help support us, help support independent publishers, during this time where the industry is really struggling. Thirdly, always love tips when the show does well and resonates with you, so definitely someone. Finally, huge thank you to Lincoln Number for supporting our work. Let's get into the episode. Hal Brands, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks for having me. Let's start with a basic question that a lot of listeners are probably going to feel. You're looking at lessons from the first Cold War with a capital C, capital W, and how that could apply to today. Is it crazy to think, though, that maybe as we're looking at Russia, possible intersections with China, but the first Cold War never actually ended? Yeah, it's, it's not crazy at all. And in fact, I mean, what we're seeing in Eastern Europe today is sort of an indication that even though the Cold War as, as we knew it, which kind of combined geopolitical and ideological competition it probably came to an end when the Soviet Union disintegrated. The competition for influence in contested areas like Eastern Europe never really stopped. And that, that was a theme of international relations during the 1990s and the early 2000s. The only reason it seemed to subside was because the Russians were so weak that they couldn't do a lot about NATO's move into their former sphere of influence. But that competition has certainly reignited today. And so I think it's, it's a reminder that, um, you know, even though the contours of competition change, the reality of competition is enduring in international affairs. And, and you can make a similar point about China, by the way. You know, China, of course, was sort of a U.S. tacit ally during the last 20 years of the Cold War. But there's been good work now indicating that uh, Deng Xiaoping, even during the time when U.S.-China relations were pretty close, saw the United States also as a dangerous enemy because he worried that uh, America's power and its democratic ideals posed a threat to China's political system. And so he, he made comments to the effect that a new Cold War was beginning even as the old Cold War was coming to an end. So different leadership on the Chinese side, but focusing on the Russian angle, to what degree should we think of the Soviet Union as different from Russia as is constituted under Vladimir Putin? Well, it's significantly different in a lot of ways. And, and for one is that, um, you know, the, the guiding ideology, the official ideology of the Soviet Union is nowhere to be found in Putin's Russia. And, and so Putin's Russia is a lot of things, but it, it's not communist, it's not socialist, it's not Marxist-Leninist in any meaningful sense, although some of the old structures of the Leninist state are, are still there in a certain respect. Um, it's less powerful than the Soviet Union was. It controls less territory. Um, it's, it's got different demographics. It's, it's different in a variety of ways, but there are some continuities. And, and so both were uh, authoritarian systems that uh, would have felt more comfortable in a world that looked more like them politically, and that's one through line uh, between the Cold War and today. And, and Putin really 
you know, hasn't disguised his ambition to try to put the Soviet Union back together, if not literally, then at least to recoup some of the influence that Russia lost when it ceased to be the dominant member of the Soviet Union. And so that's a way of understanding what he's been doing in what the Russians often call their near abroad, really since the early 2000s, everything from you know, really brutally prosecuting the war in, in Chechnya, really back in the late 1990s and early 2000s, uh, to launching the war in Georgia in 2008, to interventions in, in Ukraine and Kazakhstan and Ukraine again more recently. And so it, it's certainly, uh, you know, there, just as the Soviet state was in some ways built on the legacy of imperial Russia, Putin's Russia is trying to revive those earlier legacies. And we'll get to the specifics of the Cold War lessons, but you you wrote a um, useful piece in Foreign Affairs that really delineated the differences between Cold War One and what's called as just Cold War Two. So I'd love for you to get into them. So first one, uh, as I bracketed it out, you had in Cold War One, um, you know, post debates about the post World War Two power balance, the ideological debates, and then you had the arms races. Now in Cold War Two, you have growing bipolarity. Um, distinctions between autocracies and democracies. So can you just get at why those differences matter to the conversation we're having today? Yeah, let me just pick one. And, and I think the in, in some ways, the question of the context in which the competition is occurring is a really revealing difference. And so today we worry a lot that Russia and China are kind of picking away at the edges of an international order that was once very strong, but has been fraying a little bit over the past 15 years or, or so. You know, during the late 1940s, at the beginning of the capital C, cold, capital W war, uh, there was no international order. I mean, the international order had been totally destroyed by World War II. There was uh, potential for chaos, famine, radicalism, basically everywhere you looked. The third world was starting to undergo decolonization in a serious sense, which was one of the most wrenching political changes that large parts of the world have ever experienced. And so there was just much more inherent disorder in the system in the late 1940s than there is today. And so that, that's actually one point of, of comfort in the comparison between today and the Cold War. In some ways, we're dealing with uh, rivals that are, you know, as formidable or formidable, or in China's case, perhaps a little bit more formidable than the Soviet Union, but at least the context is is more resilient than it was back in the the late 1940s. You know, we can talk about other other differences as well. I mean, the the nuclear arms race uh, loomed extremely large during the the Cold War. It was kind of the defining metric in a way of uh, the superpower's relative strength. It hasn't loomed as large up until now in, say, the U.S.-China competition, although, frankly, that's changing pretty rapidly. And so China is not now anywhere near a nuclear peer to the United States in the way that the Soviet Union was by the early 1970s. But if you look at some of the official assessments coming out of the Defense Department, for instance, the projections are that China will be a nuclear peer of the United States by sometime in the early 2030s, there is a determined nuclear modernization happening uh, in China, which is why you know, we see pictures of Chinese missile fields popping up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal from time to time. And so it, it's possible that there will be greater convergence in some areas between these two eras of competition than we might now imagine. There may also be divergence in other areas, but it's, it's a dynamic situation. Something I'm curious about here is another topic you've written about is um, Putin and Xi's real distaste with the story you just told in terms of this post-World War II order. It organized society away from the chaos of 1945. What they will basically articulate, this is a very um, US-centric, like Western-centric thing. There's the infamous speech Putin gives in 2007. Is there a difference? So actually, firstly, could you just speak to their critique of this World War II, post-World War II order, then we'll get to multipolarity and bipolar um, issues. Sure, I, th I think they're, when they critique the international order, and in some ways their critique is more pointed when it comes to the post-Cold War order than the post-1945 order. And so 
if Putin could get back to the post-1945 order, he might like that just fine because you had the Soviet Union as one of two uh, superpowers. It was sort of acknowledged as having a decisive role in its own sphere of influence and an important role on questions around the world. I think it's the, the post-Cold War order that, that threatens him and she uh, more than the post-World War II order, because what you had in, in the post-Cold War order was a system with only one superpower, uh, and it happened to be a democratic superpower, and that was deeply threatening to uh, illiberal regimes in, in Beijing and Moscow, because the principles of the international system and the norms that the United States and its allies tried to uphold were deeply at odds with the ruling ideology in China and Russia. And so the Chinese fear, for instance, was always that the United States uh, would support subversive forces within China. It would use its power to try to coerce China and change its political system. And I think you could see similar fears in Russia when they talk about the danger of color revolutions and they make these allegations that Hillary Clinton ignited protests against Putin in Moscow uh, in, in 2011 and, and 2012. Uh, and so there's sort of this piercing sense of insecurity that both countries have in the existing order, but then it's, it's magnified by the fact that they both have really vaulting ambitions. And so neither Russia nor China uh, sees itself as kind of a second tier power in a system led by the United States. They wanna be first tier powers in their own rights. They wanna dominate their regions. They wanna have global influence and be able to affect the outcome of major diplomatic and economic and military questions around the world. That, that's not at all unusual. That, that's what you know, great powerful states have always wanted. But the post-Cold War order stood in the way of that because the United States was anchoring alliances and creating balances of power in places like the Western Pacific and Eastern Europe that uh, were obstacles to Russian and Chinese visions of their own greatness. And so when you see Putin and Xi pushing back against the international system. I think that's the system that they're that they're objecting to and, and trying to revise. What I'd be curious about is you just positioned Russia and China's ambitions. Can you position the United States' ambitions in 2022? Because what's so frustrating about this debate is that usually when you're debating US versus China versus Russia, it's oftentimes a vision of the U.S. in 2005. So you'll cite, you know, George W. Bush giving his speech um, at his second inauguration, saying the central aim of U.S. foreign policy is democracy promotion. That's certainly not where Trump was. It's definitely not where Joe Biden is. So how would you define the U.S.'s ambitions right now? I think we're at a moment of a bit of dissensus in terms of defining American uh, ambitions. And so for 25 years after the end of the Cold War, I would have defined America's global ambitions ba basically in the following terms. We want to maintain a unipolar system where democratic values are dominant, where economic globalization proceeds and enriches people abroad and in, and in the United States, and in which the United States doesn't confront a peer challenger, or a peer challenger uh, on the order of the Soviet Union or other catastrophic threats like uh, jihadist terrorism. And I think, you know, George H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton, uh, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, all would have agreed with that in some way or another, even though they diverged wildly on specific policy questions. It's become a bit harder to say now. I, I think, you know, Donald Trump threw a lot of curveballs uh, at the American political system. One of them was the way in, in which he sometimes seemed to critique the international order that the United States had set up and thought that it was leading to bad deals and bad outcomes for the United States itself. And, and so I, I don't think that President Trump would have agreed with the definition of in American interests that I just gave. It would have been sort of more of a, um, uh, a narrowly nationalist, more unilateralist approach to American interest, even though some of the threats, rising China, for instance, would have been the same. I think um, President Biden probably has something of a more traditional approach to defining American interests in the world. And in that, he probably has a lot in common with internationalist Republicans like Mitt Romney, again, even though they, they may differ on a lot of specific issues. Although I, I think if you ask people in the Biden administration, they would probably say, look, we have to walk back some of the ambitions of the post-Cold War era because the international system just isn't as favorable to us 
as it once was. And so we may not be able to think about sort of maintaining a unipolar system anymore. We need a more limited objective of kind of preventing hostile powers from asserting their hegemony over a region that we care about, right? And so I think, I think where we are right now is that uh, the major challenge is how much of the world that we've created can we preserve in the coming decades? I don't think anybody expects the next 10 to 20 years are going to be sort of boom time for the spread of democracy. We're trying really to hold the line there. We're trying to hold the line against Russian revisionism in Eastern Europe, Chinese revisionism in the Western Pacific. And so if, if two decades from now, the international system sort of looks more or less like it does Today, I would consider that a big win for U.S. foreign policy. And this is the big question when you're delineating the post-World War II order from the unipolar system, the bipolar system. Is it possible, do you think, do you think it's possible to maintain this post-World War II system? Do you think this is a good system in a more multipolar world? I think it is because, you know, we often look at Russian and Chinese power and we say, wow, that, that's impressive. But I think what's worth keeping in mind is if you add up the U.S. plus all of its treaty allies in Europe and in the Indo-Pacific, um, we outweigh Russia and China in economic terms, in military terms, in terms of diplomatic influence, basically in any form of national power by a quite considerable margin. And, and so the, the question isn't so much, you know, does the United States, along with its uh, network of allies, have the power to maintain something like the existing system? I think the question is, is almost one of like, how bad do we want it, right? Are we willing to make uh, additional investments and sacrifices in order to maintain an international order that I would argue has served us relatively well? And in fact, you, you can make the argument that, you know, the, the situation we confront today while challenging is not necessarily more challenging than it was in say, you know, the late 1960s when it looked like the United States was coming apart at the seams or the late 1970s when it looked like the Soviet Union was really on the ascent. And, and one of the, um, I think, insights we've gleaned from the, the current war in Ukraine, as tragic as it is, is not to make the mistake of assuming that our enemies are 10 feet tall. I mean, this has been a really sobering reminder uh, that the Russian military is, is not all that it was sometimes cracked up uh, to be. The Chinese regime has a lot of its own weaknesses. And so we shouldn't be Pollyannish about our ability to sustain the existing international order. It'll be really hard and, and costly, but I don't think there's any inherent reason sort of in the, the nature of global power dynamics why we can't do it. You know, in the context of the history you're describing in the book, I'm interested in the, your use of the word sacrifice in the context of today, because in the Cold War context, sacrifice meant the Marshall Plan. So in investing billions and billions of dollars in today's dollars to rebuild Europe in order to stand against Soviet expansionism. This meant placing the U.S. Army as a tripwire force in Berlin and West Germany, threatening nuclear configuration, peacetime draft, all those different. Those were very specific sacrifices. But given the fact that today you, you actually see a world where not only is Europe actually prosperous and built up, but they are actually now increasing their spending on their militaries in response to Russia's aggression. What does sacrifice look like in today's context? Well, I think some of the sacrifices would probably be similar. And, and so, I mean, just to put a really fine point on it, what the current crisis has reminded us is that competition isn't some abstract thing that only happens in the economic and technological realms. I mean, great power competition comes with a real danger of great power war. It doesn't take a whole lot of imagination to think about how you could get from a Russian invasion of Ukraine to a Russia-NATO confrontation, or to think about how we could end up uh, in a scrape with the Chinese and the Taiwan Strait or elsewhere. And so one of the things that the United States kind of had to get accustomed to during the Cold War was the idea that if you wanted to maintain an acceptable concept of international order, then you actually had to be willing to deter great power conflict, which went being willing to fight it if certain interests were transgressed and certain red lines were crossed. And so I, I think we're likely to discover or rediscover, unfortunately, that aspect of great power competition Today, I mean, I think we're gonna discover other aspects of it as well. What's the, the basic problem the United States confronts right now is that we are trying to pursue basically Cold War policies. So containing 
um, authoritarian rivals along a long Eurasian periphery with post-Cold War levels of investment and resourcing. And that, that's just not going to work. Right? And so um, we spend about 3.2% of GDP on defense today. The average during the Cold War was, I believe, about 7.5%. At times during you know, periods of emergency, it went considerably higher. During the Korean War, it hit about 13 or 14% of GDP. We're not going to get back to that today, most likely, and, and that's a good thing. But you know, the idea that the United States simply can't spend a dollar more than 3.2% of GDP on defense is going to have to go by the wayside if the United States is going to be effective in this competition. And, and that's even if we are able to get more investments from our allies. And so some of those old sort of forms of financial sacrifice, of, of being willing to, to bear certain geopolitical risks are certainly coming back. Something I'm curious about, and I know this, I don't think this is your academic specialty, um, but how does a society come to a consensus around fighting these types of these types of dynamics? So for example, it wasn't as if there was a mass referendum or even a specific political program that um, President Truman advanced when we effectively got into the Cold War of Russia after World War II. Because the thing I'm interested in at a generational level, um, I, I suspect you're a little older than you look, um, with my cohort specifically, there just isn't that much buy-in to this to this concept, especially when you just like talk to people on the street. You know, there's there's a DC think tank based, the world that we come from consensus. There's a senators and members of Congress consensus. But I'm just curious, how does a society say, hey, we're gonna make these types of sacrifices or buy into this construct? It's typically a, a process. And if you think back to the early Cold War, it's a good illustration of that. And so there are a variety of moments, say between 1946 or 1947 and 1950, where what we think of as the Cold War consensus takes shape. It's, it's usually in response to a particular crisis, something that really does rivet people's attention and gets discussion of international affairs out beyond the beltway, you know, beyond the blob into normal people's uh, living rooms. And so uh, one of these moments in the early Cold War was the crisis involving Greece and Turkey in early 1947, which leads Harry Truman to go before a joint session of Congress and ask for basically emergency aid, military and economic for these countries. But Truman uses it as an occasion to try to lay out his understanding of why resisting uh, Soviet encroachment is, is really important for the United States and why Greece and Turkey are representative of this larger ideological and geopolitical struggle that is that is underway. And, and so uh, as Senator Arthur Vandenberg reportedly, but probably not really told Truman in a meeting before this, he needed to scare hell out of the American people if he was going to get them to uh, make these sort of investments. And, and so that was in some ways the beginning of the Cold War consensus. But what's remarkable is that it doesn't actually crystallize fully until the Korean War begins. And so throughout the late 1940s, the United States really had kind of a bare bones uh, defense posture. Uh, we had not done a lot of the things that would later come to be associated with containment. We hadn't made plans to permanently station American forces in Europe. There was no unified uh, military command structure for, for NATO. I mean, there was no NATO. You had the North Atlantic Treaty, which was a piece of paper saying that the United States would pledge to defend Western Europe, but there was nothing like the, the deeply institutionalized alliance that we have today. And it was the Korean War, I think, that really demonstrated for the American people that the danger of large-scale aggression, even global war, was quite real, and thus you know, allow, sort of created the political leeway and the diplomatic leeway to pursue a lot of the initiatives that we now associate with the Cold War. And so it was a long process. It was often crisis driven, but what it relied on was, you know, what we might call political elites, sort of every step of the way, trying to explain why a particular event mattered, what the stakes were, and how it related to this broader thing that we now call the Cold War. What's fascinating right now, not to get overly political on it, is it just seems clear to me that the Biden administration from the president on down is not particularly focused in this moment on giving that big articulation. So you'll see people 
not really understanding what the purpose of the sanctions policy is. So you'll see folks say things like, well, it's crazy that we're thinking these sanctions are going to cause the Russian people to revolt on the spot. Well, that's not the purpose of the policy. And I can dunk on people saying that all I want. But what I do realize is this policy that I support is not, there's not a articulation of, I won't even say war aims, but operationally on the economic level, that's what this is. How does presidential leadership to your to your Truman example, to your Eisenhower, to the Kennedy examples, even Reagan, Carter, basically every Cold War president, how does that play into this? Well, I think it's everything really, because the president is, you know, even in a, an age of division and polarization, the president is is really the only national figure we have that Americans, a majority of Americans would look to, to sort of explain what's going on in the world and why it matters to the United States. And so in a way, I think it's unfortunate that, that President Biden hasn't been more active in making this case. Now, in fairness to him, I, I think he has tried, or he tried at least during, say, the first six months of his administration to make a little bit of this case with respect to China. And so he, he often framed the U.S.-China relationship in a really interesting way, and he talked about it as, as being part of a larger clash between autocracy and democracy that would essentially determine, uh, you know, not to put it melodramatically, but the fate of human freedom for, for generations to come. And I, I think that's actually a pretty good framing for the U.S.-China rivalry. For, for a variety of reasons, the administration has gotten away from that. And in part, I think it's because they were looking to uh, put, as they call it, guardrails on the U.S.-China relationship and kind of tone down, bring down the temperature a little bit in the second half of 2021. And in part, it's because I think that there's just not agreement on what, you know, as you called it, war aims ought to be vis-a-vis -vis China. And so I think there are some folks uh, inside and outside the administration who think that, you know, if we compete more effectively for a few years, that gets us to a place of kind of stable coexistence where we're still rivals, but there's no real danger of war and we respect each other's vital interests. And it kind of looks like the Cold War in the 1970s during the detente era. And I think there are others who think that the, the competition is, is really more deeply rooted in the nature of, of this Chinese regime, particularly under Xi Jinping. And so, you know, this is something that could go on for quite a long time and it starts looking more like George Kennan's conception of the Cold War uh, in that scenario. And, and so until you get kind of analytical clarity on, on those issues, you may not get the rhetorical clarity that the people like you and I are looking for. In, in the Russian case, I think it's a little bit different because I think the administration, um, and, and here I, I think it's, it's fair to criticize, came in with a little bit of an unrealistic view of where the US-Russia relationship was going to, to go. And I think they're gonna be you know, living down the uh, aspiration of having a stable and predictable relationship with Russia for some time. Is that to, a, that's a, that's a um, quote, right? Like that was- uh, the... Yeah, it's, it's, it's a quote basically from um, a variety of statements that the administration made about the summit with Putin uh, earlier in 2021 and, and sort of where they wanted the relationship to go. Now, in fairness, they had some good reasons for wanting to do that. I think the idea was that sort of at current levels of resourcing, the United States needed to try to create some stability in its relations with Russia so that it could focus on China. I think the, the downside is perhaps that, you know, the more Putin heard us say that we wanted to downgrade other things so we could focus on China, that may actually have encouraged him to push a little bit harder and see what he could get from a distracted United States. And so I think the administration is sort of just now, one of the reasons that they may be, there may be a little bit of, you know, muddled messaging about what we're trying to accomplish vis-a-vis -vis Russia is that the administration is basically having to shift its Russia policy on the fly right now. So in this last section, we're going to cover the the broad lessons, takeaways from the, the Cold War experience, how they can apply today. I want to start though, by focusing on this word competition. It seems to me from the, the clearest translation to just a person who doesn't really follow foreign policy, because a lot of the incoming on these episodes, which have done very well, has been folks who were just not, I had a friend text me, wait, we have 100,000 troops in Europe? I had no idea. And this is not a person, this is a person with a grad degree from, from Stanford. So this is not a, a, a random person. It seems to me the most relevant fact from the Cold War is that we competed with the Soviet Union, we competed with China, and this did not escalate to a hot war which could have gone nuclear. That seems to be just the clearest takeaway. Within that context, how, how was that achieved and how does that accomplishment apply to today? 
Well, it was a really complex mix of caution and deterrence, basically. And, and so, uh, you know, when we, th- it, it, it's a little bit of a mistake when you sometimes hear, you know, pundits refer to the Cold War as this time of stability where everybody knew where the boundaries were and it was a long piece and, and so on and so forth. That's not how it felt at the time. And I think American policymakers were acutely conscious that deterrence took hard work and it took you know, serious thinking about almost unthinkable things. And so when we talk about nuclear deterrence, for instance, what we're talking about is a set of plans to kill tens of millions or perhaps hundreds of millions of people in nuclear strikes. The idea being that we're going to make that prospect so awful that the other side won't test us in a significant way. Um, We invested uh, tons and tons of money and tons and tons of time and intellectual energy in devising defense strategies that would allow us to protect allies in Western Europe or in East Asia. And so there were there was a lot of hard, really confrontational type thinking that went into keeping the Cold War cold by trying to persuade the Soviets that aggression just wouldn't pay. So that was that was one part of it. The other part of it, though, was that there was an awareness that we also had to be careful about pushing competition too far. And so the the, when we looking back on it, the most dangerous part of the Cold War was probably the first 15 years that that's when a lot of the major crises in places like Berlin and Cuba were. And it was in some ways uh, the time when the rules of the game were being worked out a little bit. And so what you see. In, in those crises is that American policymakers, they are um, you know, firm in the sense of not giving up important interests, but not provocative. And so in the Berlin crisis uh, at the end of the Eisenhower administration, Ike basically says, look, we're not going to negotiate at the point of a gun, but I'm not going to do things like bringing up the reserves either, because I don't want to make the, the guys in the Kremlin any jumpier than they already are. Uh, and the and Cuban could you missile explain crisis. what the, you, and I think people know the yeah. Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, yeah. What fair, was the fair, Berlin crisis? Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So, so basically um, you had, a, you had a, uh, a Berlin that was divided between uh, Soviet and Western sectors of control, but located deep within the Soviet zone of, of Germany, right? The, east, the Eastern part of Germany. And so it was a constant point of vulnerability for the United States and its Western allies. And from time to time, Soviet leaders, particularly Nikita Khrushchev, would threaten essentially to kick the West out of Berlin and to start a war if they didn't uh, agree. And so this, there were a handful of Berlin crises. The one that I mentioned was uh, sort of at the end of Eisenhower's presidency. There was another one at the beginning of Kennedy's uh, presidency. And in in all cases, uh, the United States and its allies basically said, we're not going anywhere, but nonetheless, we don't want to escalate things more than we need to. Um, if you think about the Cuban Missile Crisis, um, which people are probably more familiar with, um, there, there is sort of a similar approach there, where basically said the, the missiles have to come out, but we are willing to give you a no invasion pledge. We won't invade Cuba and topple Fidel Castro, and we'll secretly remove these obsolete missiles uh, from Turkey and, and Italy at the same time. And, and so there was kind of this mix of deterrence and reassurance. And o- over time, you actually get sort of a set of almost rules that do emerge. And so the United States and the Soviet Union, they still compete fiercely, but they don't really militarily challenge each other at the core of the international system in Europe after about 1962. They divert the competition into areas where the alignments are more fluid, the, the thinking being that it's a little safer. I don't want to exaggerate that. I mean, there were still nuclear, there was a nuclear alert in the 1973 uh, October war between Israel and uh, Egypt and, and Syria. There were a variety of nuclear scares uh, in the early 1980s. It was still quite dangerous, but you did get to a somewhat somewhat more stable equilibrium over time. And I'm glad you keep referring to rules and rules of the game, because that's why I asked, should we treat Russia uh, Russian, the Russian Federation as a stand-in for the Soviet Union, because there are examples. So for, you know, early Korean War, strong indication that Soviet pilots are flying MiGs and shooting down American fighters. Now, that does not, that's okay, 
it's not okay, but operationally, we were okay with that. Um, you obviously have during the Vietnam War, um, the um, the Chinese and, and the Soviets are supplying um, North Vietnam in a way that obviously we're going to fight them. We're going to fight those supplies um, as they're going on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, but we are not going to fight them at the border. Um, and then there's just the obvious example um, that really applies today. You know, 1979 on, we are supporting the Mujahideen against um, the Soviet Union. You did a, you had a great um, piece um, in Bloomberg about um, the insurgency in Ukraine, how um, this example cannot apply. But the key thing, while the um, Soviets may launch strikes against certain Pakistani ISI bases, they are not going to treat the fact that we are allowing and causing the deaths of Soviet aviators um, with Stinger missiles to cause a broader war. Those three examples, oh, and then also, also the CIA, and both sides are doing this, but the CIA is also supporting um, rebels in Eastern, in Eastern Europe. So in all of those cases, should we assume that those rules, quote unquote, those lines of acceptability, do they port over to the current Cold War? Because on every single count, all of those examples actually apply to the Ukraine crisis. It's, it's a fascinating question. And I think we're, gonna, we're getting our answer in real time today. And with the caveat that we only have about you know, 10 or 11 days of evidence to support this, it, it does kind of appear that a similar rule set is taking shape today. And, and so when Putin talks about things that would be unacceptable in Ukraine, he talks about imposition of a no-fly zone, right? He talks mm -hmm. about US or NATO military intervention in Ukraine. He hasn't said it's unacceptable to supply the Ukrainian government with anti-tank munitions, right? He hasn't said it's, it's unacceptable to be quietly running supplies across the border from Poland and Romania. And, and now we'll see where this goes, right? And so if there is, let's say, just you know, hypothetically, the Russians do manage to grab a large chunk of Ukraine and then an insurgency breaks out to contest Russian control of these areas and the United States and its NATO allies are heavily involved in supporting that insurgency. All of these seem like reasonable suppositions at this point. You know, would the Russians take a greater interest in trying to cut off those supplies? Would they start threatening the NATO countries whose borders the supplies are coming across? That, that's entirely possible. And the other, the other thing that comes away from the Cold War is that the rules were not such as they were, were not etched in stone. And mm -hmm. so the Soviets didn't simply take it in Afghanistan when the United States and the Pakistani uh, intelligence services were setting up sanctuaries on the Pakistani side of the border and using them to funnel arms and money into Afghanistan. Those arms were you know, used to kill Soviet personnel. Occasionally, Soviet air power uh, would, or, or you know, ground raids would come across the border and try to clear out some of those sanctuaries or intimidate the Pakistanis into reducing their support. And so it was kind of an ongoing contest and coercion uh, involving both sides. And that, that's sort of what I would expect to see happen today, because ultimately, whatever rules are negotiated, they don't you know, come from nowhere and, and they're not sort of held in place by, by their own force, they are created by the power realities on the ground. And so I would expect we'd see that today as well. You know, as you were stating that, I just realized the other problem of just invoking the Afghan experience is Afghanistan. I mean, it's, it's, it's on the, it's on, it's on the Soviet border in terms of the, um, um, it was back, you know, the, the, what were, what became like Uzbekistan and those other countries, but, you know, Ukraine to the Russian articulation is much, much, much closer um, to the country. So it's it's one thing to say, look, there are some, you know, mountain passes that are going to be in this ambiguous zone. It's entirely different when, once again, it's Poland and it's Eastern Europe. So I, I think I think that's a, a very well taken point. So in this bit here, what's we this has been relatively triumphalist, I think I think in a good way, but let's focus on mistakes. What are the what are the big categorical mistakes on a couple of different levels? when it came to how the U.S. and the West broadly prosecuted the Cold War? So it, it's a great question. I guess the, the caveat I would offer at the beginning of an answer is that both successes and mistakes only look obvious in retrospect. And so, um, you know, there were a lot of people who thought that NATO was a terrible idea in 1949. And now we look back and we say, boy, we're glad we did that. 
there were, uh, you know, lots of people who thought that intervention in Vietnam was a good idea in 1964, 1965. And, and so, um, you know, we can observe things that worked out well and worked out poorly, and we can try to abstract lessons or try to, to draw lessons from them. But it's, it's worth remembering that it's a, it's a fraught endeavor. Uh, that, that notwithstanding, I guess one thing I would say is that uh, it is a mistake to think that you can be strong everywhere or that you can compete everywhere or push back against your opponent's influence uh, everywhere. We, we found during the Cold War that that was a recipe uh, not simply for overextension, but for a backlash against containment that nearly blew up the whole policy. And, and here I'm talking most notably, of course, about Vietnam, but it happens in other places as well. And so I think one of the, the really hard tasks is figuring out where you absolutely have to compete and, and what interests really are vital and what are the places where you shouldn't sweat it as much if your adversary appears to have some influence. I mean, we can make some, some decent judgments about that Today, Eastern Europe and the Western Pacific are obviously crucial to the balance of, of power in very important regions. There are parts of Central Asia uh, or Africa either that just aren't as geopolitically important or where we're just not going to be as successful in competing. And so we need to take more of a limited liability approach to uh, pushing our interests there. And, and, and so that's one that I think is often flagged when people think about the Cold War. The, the other mistake, I guess, which is maybe a little bit less commonly evoked is, you know, don't make the mistake of thinking that this is going to be easy. And, and so, you know, we talk about great power competition, and I think most Americans probably assume that we'll win in these competitions in the end. And I, I think we will, and I, I hope that we will. But one thing that looking at the history of the Cold War reminds you is that there was nothing easy about it. And, and you mentioned this very nicely earlier. I mean, the Cold War required the United States to do things that, that really didn't have a lot of precedent in its own experience. I mean, we had never had a sizable peacetime military before the Cold War. We had never built in peacetime a major intelligence uh, apparatus uh, that was sort of centrally directed. Uh, the United States had never constructed a global network of alliances and patrolled vulnerable frontiers around the world. We had never thought it necessary to risk war and perhaps annihilation over places that were seven, 8,000 miles away. All of that was part and parcel of, of waging the Cold War. And while I certainly hope we won't re relive all aspects of the Cold War today, I think we do have to understand that those types of dangers and those types of risks and costs are inherent in, in what we are proposing to do. It seems like from an optimist, because I need something optimistic in this episode, it seems like the optimistic note is because ideological competition doesn't work on the same level. So obviously there's this big narrative, a narrative I buy into, but there's this narrative about autocracy versus democracy. That's not actually a competition, right? There isn't, there aren't, uh, there aren't, I mean, there are, it's funny, there are autocratic parties in various democratic or quasi-democratic states, but there's no, like, there's no big uh, autocratic forum that meets um, in some corner. I mean, I guess actually Putin's talking about doing a conference this summer. So I guess these things are evolving over time, but it's just not the same thing. Like, for example, there, there were communist parties in Europe and the United States. There is not a, despite certain um, comments people make, there are, there's no autocratic party in, in Western states. So because there's no ideological competition, it seems like by definition, this will just be constrained. We are not going to say to ourselves, uh-oh, something's happening in South Vietnam. That isn't just a debate over nationalism and colonialism, but it's actually a part of this big ideological struggle that we have to fight in all corners. Is my Would you agree or disagree with my characterization? So I guess maybe I would disagree. Um, I, I think that there is a, a pretty strong ideological component to these competitions, particularly the US-China competition. I think that the US-Russia competition is a little bit different because Russia doesn't really have any ideological model to offer, although it certainly likes to degrade democracy as, as a way of sort of tarnishing its image. But I, I do think the Chinese believe that they have a different ideological model to offer, that the combination of essentially state-directed capitalism and tight control of the political system is something that has worked for China, at least in the estimation of the CCP, if not in the estimation of, of all Chinese people, and that um, China has a chance uh, to sort of promote its ideological vision. And it's even, it, and it's not necessarily sort of a matter of pride, it may just be a, a matter of survival. And, and so 
you know, when China tries to change our understanding of human rights in the United Nations, or it, it tries to strengthen uh, autocrats that are facing pressure in Southeast Asia or Central Asia, whatever the case may be, that's a means of self-protection for Beijing because Beijing is less likely to face international pressure over its own repressive practices in a world where autocracy is protected and perhaps even privileged. And so that, that's one piece of it. The, the other piece of it though, is that there is something irreducibly ideological about America's approach to foreign policy. And, and I, I just think that the American response and frankly, the European response to Ukraine would be much, much different if Ukraine were an absolutist monarchy, right? If it, if it were not a fledgling democracy struggling to reform and strengthen its own institutions. I mean, that, that's a story that Americans can relate to and, it, it, and it's an idea that they can get behind. And so I, I do think that even when we're not in sort of a communism versus capitalism, more sort of monarchian um, ideological contest, these ideological themes are never particularly far from the surface. And you mentioned the UN. So another bit of corporate history, which is useful is, it, you know, obviously, let's put aside um, UN peacekeeping missions and, you know, food aid programs and just focus on the idea that the UN could serve as this forum for resolving international conflict other than the Korean War, where the, where the Soviets, um, to their discredit, um, abstained um, from the actual boycott, not just abstained, they boycotted the vote where the UN authorized the intervention in uh, Korea, which the US then went on to lead, fun history, history fact for folks. Um, it doesn't seem like most of those internationalist institutions, and then you could throw in the WHO um, during and post COVID, it seems like that's part of the structure has the least amount of let's just say legitimacy, track record for success, once again, when it comes to adjudicating conflict, how should we think of, once again, during this moment of rebirth, reformation, realignment, pick your, pick your phrase there, how should we think of international institutions? We should probably think of them as venues for competition. And so the, the lazy way of thinking about international organizations, which you sometimes see you know, Americans fall into, um, is that they are kind of apolitical bodies that exist to adjudicate international disputes. And, and there may be sort of a certain element of that in the founding intentions of, of these organizations, but these are deeply political organizations. They, they shape um, global norms on things, you know, as mundane as rules for civil aviation and intellectual property rules. And so there's a reason that the Chinese have been working really hard to try to co-opt these institutions, whether by placing their own nationals at the head of a number of the specialized UN agencies or simply lobbying very hard in institutions like the WHO uh, to get their way because they, they realize that international organizations can be vehicles for strengthening the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party and projecting its influence around the world. And by the way, I mean, the United States, I think, once understood this as well. I mean, we've long used international organizations like the IMF or the World Bank as vehicles for American influence and as uh, ways of promoting um, economic or political uh, institutions and norms that we think are good. And so we, we need to get back to that understanding of international institutions as a place where competition happens if we're going to be successful. So as we wrap, um, to set up the last question here, what's made this series we're doing on these questions particularly relevant is it feels like we're at this moment where a lot of things are up for grabs, language, policies, ideas need to be set. And you wrote another great Bloomberg piece that um, referred to this idea that Putin himself as an individual um, discarded three specific myths, uh, myths that... Um, defined this post-Cold War era. And you, and you, and I think an appropriate comparison compared him to previous um, figures of history like Napoleon, Stalin, Hitler. Um, this, and this isn't being you know, hyperbolic, just the idea that these, the, these, are, these, are, these are men whose actions, because of the autocratic nature of their rule, are able to push aside um, myths and models. So could you just start by explaining that idea of those four figures pushing aside models and then explain what those three myths that um, 
um, Putin has pushed aside as we move forward. There's a recurring tendency in, in human history for really smart people to assume that we have left behind the bad old days and are moving into a newer, more peaceful, more cooperative era. You see this in the late uh, 18th century. You see this at times during the 19th century. You see it at the beginning of the 20th century. And what uh, without exception happens is that some individual or group of individuals comes along and reminds us that the world kind of is as it always has been. Napoleon played that role by taking, uh, uh, Napoleon plus the French Revolution played that role by taking Europe into nearly a generation uh, of war. We saw that in the 20th century with the fascist and, and communist leaders uh, who really helped provoke you know, conflicts of unprecedented depth and, and savagery. And we're seeing it again with, with Putin today. And I think Putin has kind of shattered three of the most optimistic assumptions of the post-Cold War order that we were talking about earlier. The, the idea that democracy is destined to spread to the ends of the earth, uh, the idea that war is passe and that great powers don't really fight uh, anymore, and the idea that history runs in the direction of progress and good things rather than bad things. And I think what, what Putin has reminded us is that none of these things is Assured, And if there's a silver lining, I, I know I really um, failed to deliver on the earlier effort to end with optimism. So, so let me try that here. I think what he's done is he's delivered a wake-up call to the, the countries that have benefited a lot from the existing international system. And so we, we've seen things happen in the last 10 days that I think a lot of us kind of expect, expected we would never see happen. You have Germany getting serious about rearmament. Um, you have uh, countries in Europe uh, shipping arms to the Ukrainians. You have Japan and Taiwan joining in the sanctions coalition because they're really worried about what this portends for the Western Pacific. And, and so you can start to see the outlines of a strategy whereby the United States and its allies use this crisis to get serious about defending the international order and all of the good things that it has produced. And so in my more optimistic moments, I think that Putin may have done us a favor by reminding us of the fragility that the world, the fragility of the world that we inhabit and, and pushing us to do more to make sure that it's not ruptured. Well, Hal, this has been really great and informative. You, you write a lot of books. You're very prolific. So could you just shout out, we like to move books here. So obviously, um, Shout out um, the Twilight Struggle, but any other? I, I think we hit, especially your one on U.S. security, um, like from Truman onwards. Just shout out a couple of your books that be relevant to folks who want to learn more. Sure. So if if you're interested in the idea of grand strategy, I wrote a book called "What Good Is Grand Strategy: uh, America, Power and Purpose in American Statecraft from Harry Truman to George W. Bush," uh, which is basically about the role of strategic thinking in U.S. foreign policy since 19. 19- 45. Uh, I just published the book that you mentioned, which is called The Twilight Struggle and, and deals with lessons from the Cold War for the U.S. competitions with Russia and China today. And then uh, later this year, I have a book coming out with a friend of mine, uh, an academic named Michael Beckley, which is called The Danger Zone and talks about the next decade in U the U.S.-China competition and why that will be the hairiest part of what will likely be a very long struggle. Well, would love to have the, I actually have Michael's um, previous book. So would love to have the two of you on um, when that comes out as well, too. I'd be delighted to come back. Well, Hal, thank you for joining us uh, on The Realignment. Thanks. This has been great.